0: It is uh, Tuesday, September 26th, 8.02 p.m., and uh, this is Book Shirts, the second uh, uh, of the inaugural shows on Dog Shirt TV, and I am here with my old friend, Will Salatan, who I was trying to remember how I met And I honestly couldn't remember. I think it probably has something to do with David Plotz, but I'm not sure. It's lost in the mists of time. Will, if you remember, um, uh, you have a better memory than I.
1: Uh, One thing, uh, just that is is that link for for the people who I sent out to, to on Twitter and threads, uh, who have the original link? Will they see when they go to that link where the correct link is?
0: They will. There will. There is a um, a, a spot on the uh, the the new YouTube that has the right uh, cool. answer. Cool. Uh,
1: okay. Uh, so where we met, I do not remember exactly either. Except uh, I believe so. You were uh, an editorial writer at the Post, I believe. When I met you, is that correct?
0: That's almost certainly right. And I think you were, you were, well, I didn't know you before you were at Slate. So it was sometime when you were at Slate early in your Slate life. Um,
1: so it, it may have been during the Slate time. It could have been before that. I was at Hotline for, uh, after, I was a New Republic intern. Then I finished up college. Then I was. Right, doing freelancing. I was working for Hotline. I was writing for Mother Jones. So somewhere in there before I went to Slate, I probably met you before then. Um, and I, uh, Amy Schwartz was at the Post, and she, was, I knew her. And I'm guessing that I met you when I came to the Post to visit Amy. That's a theory.
0: That's an interesting theory, because Amy and I were very close. But that would date it pretty precisely, because Amy was living in France for a while in the late 90s. Then she came back. She was in Washington when Meg Greenfield died. Uh, and then she uh, served for only a year or a couple, to, a couple of years after Fred Hyatt took over. So it would have been in that 2001, 2002-ish era, Uh, that we would have actually met. So that's a long time ago. We were young then. We're old and stupid now. Uh, And you have written what I have to say is the most developed um, hit piece I have ever read (laughs) on anybody. (laughs) Um, And so I want to break down what I think happened in the writing of this piece. And you tell me, how well I've psychoanalyzed it and whether I've gotten it right. So you you started off, as you say in the beginning of the piece, interested in Lindsey Graham because he is uh, so loquacious that he explains his way through his whole corruption. And you say, okay, I've got a great idea I'm going to uh, write the ultimate piece on how somebody gets corrupted by Trump. And with Lindsey Graham, I have his own words with which to do it. And what you don't realize is just how many words this guy has. And, And that he's actually explained in incredibly neurotic detail every aspect of his corruption because he feels guilty enough about it that he's um, that he's kind of talking himself through it and talking himself into it. And he doesn't have a sense of object permanence himself. And so his idea that he never occurs to him that somebody is going to take him seriously enough to go through his words over a long period of time, and you become as obsessive about it as Lindsey Graham was about explaining himself, and that is how this piece balloons from what was going to be a profile, uh, or not a profile, but a kind of um, uh, you know object lesson for the bulwark into a kind of pamphlet. How'd I do?
1: Okay, not not bad. Um, you so you got two theories in there. One is the theory of what I was thinking, and the other is the theory of what he was thinking.
0: Well, my, my theory is a theory of what you were thinking about what he was thinking about
1: what he was thinking. Okay, so I, I'll here I'll give you the my my version of it, and you can see how well it corresponds. Um, th- originally, this started at Slate when I was at Slate until the end of twenty twenty one, beginning of twenty twenty two, and I had been I had been thinking for a couple of years during the Trump administration about. About um, what uh, I think I called it the collaborators. So it wasn't going to be one person. It was going to be Paul Ryan and Marco Rubio and, you know, all these other guys. Nikki Haley was one of them. And Lindsey Graham was one of them. And I was going to try to write about all of them. And that quickly I quickly realized that was just not going to be possible. Just too many people. Uh, to it's too diffuse a story. Now, I believe eventually, when people write histories of the Trump years, some of them have been written about Trump himself. But there will be stories about about the collaborators and Lindsey Graham will be just one of them. Um, And that will cap those those histories will capture a lot of what I didn't capture.
0: Um, So who do you think are the other when you think of like Lindsey Graham is in some ways unique because he starts out as a full-throated, bulwark-type critic. Um, who are the other people who you you think of as in Lindsey Graham's league as collaborators?
1: I have to remember, there were about a dozen who I looked at as could be included in the group, or then I could, could look at them individually. Haley was actually the one who, I at the time, I was trying to choose one, she was the next best thing. Um, I was I was listening to some of her speeches, some of her interviews, and there were a few problems. She she just wasn't nearly as prolific as Graham was. Um, but she and she's they're all different, right? I mean Haley as a particularly what's a what's a nice word Ben for smarmy. Um, she's a, a particularly sort of bless your heart kind of southern um, flavor. It's different from Graham's. Graham is, as you point, he's more of a lawyer. He's more interested in rationalizing. She's more interested in appearing to be a nice person and appearing to be good. Um, And he's more interested in making a technically careful argument. Um, So this started out as an idea at Slate um, and nobody was particularly that interested in it at the time. And I hadn't figured out how I would do it. When I went to the Bulwark, I said to them at the beginning, they, they came to me and they asked me to come to the Bulwark. And I said, listen, what I'd really like to do is take some time off and write this thing about Lindsey Graham, because by that time I had decided on doing Graham, and then I can come work for you. And Jonathan Last said to me, no, just come to us now and you can write it while you're here. And I thought, wow, that's unusual, because as you know, Ben, trying to get time at any publication to take time out to write something of this magnitude is hard to get. So I was very grateful and I, I worked on it for quite some time and you're correct. There was way more of it than I thought. And what actually happened is there were, there were three versions of this. When I went to talk to Adam Kuyper, the executive editor, then the managing editor of the Bulwark about this, I said, this would probably take me two months. (laughs) So I was off by a factor (laughs) of
0: It takes two months just to read all the stuff.
1: <laughs> but at that time, what it, what I was working with was I thought, Ben, that, oh my God, Lindsey Graham has this amazing YouTube page. He has videos of all these interviews that he did and these speeches on the floor of the Senate, committee speeches. He's got all this stuff, you know. You it's a tremendous resource. I'll go through this and I'll be able to write it. So I got through that and then. Then I was starting to work on it and I thought, to organize it, and I thought, you know, I should go check his Facebook page because conservatives don't use Twitter a lot, but they use Facebook. So I go to his Facebook page and from that, I find way, way more stuff that wasn't on the YouTube page. And then I started writing it, and I got part of the way through and I said, you know, just in case I should go look at his Twitter feed. And it turns out Lindsey Graham has an amazing Twitter feed. So there were three layers of video and audio that I then you know put together in a massive file and then started organizing the story of Lindsey Graham.
0: And before I get to the question that I think everybody who's read this or listened to it wants to hear from you, I wanna ask whether and what sort of contact you have had with Lindsey Graham he obviously was not willing to sit for an interview for this um but um have you heard anything in response to it from either him or his people have they just radio silenced you
1: yeah i mean to be fair to them uh, i didn't spend a lot of time courting them i said um i've here's what i i've you know i've i don't by that time organized what i what i Wanted to say based on his public record. So it wasn't just my opinion. It was, I had put together the story as it was visible to the public. Then the question is, what more could be added by talking to him directly? Um, And by the way, he has talked to a lot of book authors. And if you read books from this period, and I included material from them, you do get a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Um, But I said to, I was very honest with Graham's press office. And I just said, look, I don't think I'm writing about his relationship with Trump. I don't think it reflects well on him, but I'd like to hear his answers about. And I listed that what I I said, here's what I'll ask you about. I was very clear. And their response is he's not interested. Um, He I I think he just doesn't want to talk about his relationship with Trump with a media organization that he not only doesn't know is on his side, but he knows is on the anti-Trump side.
0: On the other hand, he. Did spend a fair bit of time with Mark Leibovich, I think, like humiliating himself without seeming to realize it. And I'm curious about the disparity in the treatment. Mark Leibovich, uh, uh, as best as I I say, this in admiration, I like Mark. He humiliates people for a living. <laughs> no, nobody. Uh really, nobody's ever come away looking good from a Mark Leibovich profile um and um you know, including this whole town um and he um but Lindsey Graham seemed to let him follow him around and explain his thinking um. Was it that he'd learned his lesson from that experience, or that you're scarier than levitch? what's the oh what's
1: Ben nobody's scarier than Levivitch <laughs> <laughs> no i it, it's possible that it unfolded that way. I mean, I think Mark's strategy is different. Mark is a fantastic um reporter of of texture um of a scene of he'll he captures the person as they're speaking to him. I'm not that. I'm a researcher. So Mark's approach is he, he needs the subject to be to cooperate in order to write the piece. He needs to give you the feel of being up close, being with Lindsey Graham. I didn't need that. And I didn't want to need that. And what I was trying to do was I deliberately chose somebody for whom I could put together the history without needing to talk to them. And if he talks to me, that's great. And I can add to it. But I wanted to be able to tell the story from the prolific public record that Graham had left.
0: Right. So this is the important methodological difference between you and Leibovich. Leibovich if Lindsey Graham does not cooperate, he doesn't write the story. Right. right? There, there's no story that Leibovich is going to write about Lindsey Graham unless he has the kind of access necessary to shiv him and twist. Um, On the other hand, you're going to write the story either way. You've found a body of information that is accessible and that they cannot control access to. And it's kind of secondary whether Lindsey Graham participates because he's already participated without knowing it.
1: Right. And and the other point I would make about that, Ben, is I wanted, so anyone who's Written about or investigated for a for legal purposes, never never mind, journalism. Um, what somebody really did and said and thought over a period of time knows that it is more important to get contemporaneous information than it is to get a, a, a retrospective account. So what Lindsey Graham says today, uh, as he did in books about this period, about you know what went on from twenty sixteen to 2020, is not as valuable to me as what he actually visibly said and did at the time. And there are some obvious, set, setting aside anything I did, there are some very obvious discrepancies between his account of himself today when he speaks to reporters about what happened and and what you can find when you go back and look at the record. And so I wanted to use the record. And And just to be clear, Ben, I believe that in the future, people will put all this together um, the you know, what was contemporaneous and and the and each person's retrospective accounts to the extent any of these people will talk, and we'll sort it out as best we can. so I'm not providing the definitive answer. I'm telling you what is visible from the public record.
0: all right, so let's get to the question that I think is on the minds of consciously or subconsciously, every person who has read this or listened to it, which is on a scale of one to 10, how much do you hate Lindsey Graham?
1: <laughs> that was not, that was not what I thought the question was going to be.
0: What did you, what did, what did you think the question was going to be?
1: I thought you were just going to ask the general sort of what really happened to this guy? You no,
0: know? no, 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 we're going to get to that. Okay. But, but, but one thing that I picked up, particularly from the podcast actually was that you are just dripping with disgust for him. And <laughs> um and <laughs> that 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 you got into this because you thought there might be a trajectory that was understandable. And the more you heard from him, the particularly at the early stage in this transition, the more you just have like detest or, or even despise in the true sense of the word. Um, uh, And so I just want to know scale of one to 10, where 10 is as Jonathan last would say, you'd fire him into the sun.
1: (laughs) So I I hate to disappoint you, but I don't hate him. I just don't hate him. And the reason is, I, I mean, I think in order to write something like this fairly and accurately, Look, if he were off, Donald Trump, Donald Trump is one of the worst human beings this country has ever produced, a truly awful person in every way. Lindsey Graham is not. Lindsey Graham is not that. And part of what, I mean, to write a kind of this kind of story well, you've got to even if you start out with a critical assumption about a person, which I did in this case, Lindsey Graham capitulated to Donald Trump, he did some a lot of bad things, and he sank, he just sank and gave up a lot of what he believed. That's all true, but but you have to go in prepared to change what you think based on what you find, because if you if you start setting aside stuff that you find because it doesn't fit your thesis going in, then you, I just think you lose your way, you lose your way and you're, you're of no value to anyone, you're just ranting. So to take the simplest example, it is not true, as many people believe, that Lindsey Graham sold out completely to Donald Trump. That is just not true, that Lindsey Graham doesn't believe anything, that he didn't believe anything. Um, And part of what I found in looking at the record is Lindsey Graham fought with Donald Trump about things that Lindsey Graham really cared about, and they were policy issues. You can disagree with Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham is an internationalist. He fought with Donald Trump about every troop deployment, every withdrawal. He fought about Syria. He fought about Afghanistan. He fought about um, Iraq. He fought about any place where Donald Trump disagreed, he fought. And he that was what he fought for. Now, there are other things that he fought for because Lindsey Graham did want what he called, you know, he called he talked about FOMO, fear of missing out. He did want to be in the middle of the action. But I think Whereas in his, when he talked to Leibovitch, all Lindsey Graham conveyed there was sort of wanting to be in the middle of things, right? And that's true. But there were he, the guy is a very serious person on foreign policy. You don't need to look farther than the Ukraine debate to see that he has things he really cares about, things that you and I would agree with, and he, he holds his ground. And what's curious is how he, at the same time, chose to sell out other things And why he didn't care about them the way you or I do about the rule of law in the United States, for example.
0: And so when you compile the mental list of what Graham got in return for the Faustian bargain, sold his soul to the devil, got the Will Salatan, Mark Leibovitch treatment at the end of the day. Uh, He's a lot of people, including me, who used to admire him now have active contempt for him um uh I would say I'm a six on the hate scale um um which is you know I don't actually hate that many people at the level of a six um you know and um can I, can on I the speak? other on the other hand you're saying he got some things so what it like make the list make the case for the Faustian bargain it's 2017 and you're Lindsey Graham and you've made the strategic decision now I'm going to suck up and I'm going to make myself relevant and now you're looking back on it four years later and you say wow my my soul is a rotten piece of shit but I got x y and z what what are the things he really got
1: I mean the the, I just just scribbled down while you're talking I'm just thinking about he he fought Trump to keep troops in Syria. He was able eventually to keep some, but he he, de- he delayed Trump from pulling out of various places where we were deployed, Syria, Afghanistan. Um, Trump didn't pull out of NATO, which Trump wanted to do and presumably would do in a second term. Um, the uh, the missiles to Ukraine, uh, the 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 arm, arms to Ukraine. Um, he, Graham did not get. Trump to move over enough on immigration, so I can't say that one. Um, I'm not sure about domestic issues. Graham didn't fight as hard on domestic issues. The really interesting pattern to me about Graham, if you look at just the chronology, is at these moments where there were very hot domestic fights over Trump's abuse of power um, around the Mueller invest around the Russia investigation, around the Ukraine uh, scandal, um, at these moments, when Graham was absolutely selling out as a lawyer for Trump and defending the worst things Trump did, at the very same time, Graham was lobbying Trump. Um, the the one that I think of is is Ukraine. So that's the fall of twenty nineteen, and Graham is just trashing, just trying to undermine the investigation of the Ukraine um, quid pro quo, and at the same time, he's fighting Trump desperately to keep troops in Syria, and. And then he has to negotiate a thing with Trump to, to get that done. I don't think it's a coincidence that 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 those two things were were linked. Um, so. So, yeah, he fought for that stuff. And, and I want to say, Ben, about the hate question, if you're a six, I'm probably a three or a four. I my problem is I can't. First of all, I don't like hating people, except people who really deserve it. And I don't think Graham is one of those people. But the larger point I want to make is if we treat this as a matter of hateworthiness, that Graham is hateful because of what he did. I think it's very easy to think only someone like Lindsey Graham would do this. I think this is a much more alarming story if you acknowledge that Graham is a complicated figure and that that somebody who actually believed in things still sold out. Because it's very easy to tell ourselves that only empty suits do that and that good people, normal people wouldn't do that but the history of, of authoritarianism and totalitarianism is full of people selling out who you wouldn't think would do so. And I think he's one of them.
0: So that's fair enough. I, 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 I guess the line between hatred and contempt is a tricky one. Right. And um, and I certainly think he is a figure worthy of great contempt, uh, especially because he set up, you know, I feel differently about him than I do about the many Trump defenders in, um, in the Senate who, you know, you kind of feel like they know better, but they don't have a track record of establishing that they know better. And the thing that makes Lindsey Graham distinctive is that he spent 2016... Or at least the first half of it, really establishing that he knows better, and I think that makes him a unusual character in a in the opposite direction that the you know that this is somebody who warned about the dangers, who was victimized by the man I mean he you know who gave out his cell phone number and the like um who was personally very close to John McCain at the time that Trump attacked him um who I, I i mean he he betrayed a lot of people as well as a lot of things that he said and 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 I'm i guess I'm surprised at how forgiving you are of it
1: well, it is Yom Kippur, right? So I'll be, uh, but, 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 but no, I, I don't want to overstate this, my sympathy here for Lindsey Graham. I, I, just wanted to, I, I just wanted to say he did believe in things and it's, that's an important part of the story. But I, I think you're drawing a very useful distinction between hatred and contempt. So on the contempt scale, there are moments in the story when, when I came across them, I was revolted. Um, and the one that comes to mind at the moment is after January sixth. So there's parts of the story everybody knew at the time. These people invaded the Capitol. You know the the Ukraine, the Mueller investigation. Everybody remembers those things. But there were things either I hadn't noticed at the time or I didn't remember. And one of them is a week after January sixth. So the the House is mo- at this point was moving an impeachment uh, res- uh, articles of impeachment and. Lindsey Graham was on Sean Hannity's show. And I I did not find this interview in the first three rounds. I found it sort of, it came indirectly. And I'm watching this interview. And for the first time, I realized this is Lindsey Graham, three times in this interview saying, we need to uh, end the impeachment of, of Trump. We need to stop the impeachment. We need to prevent the impeachment because otherwise there will be violence in the streets. And he says this Three times in the interview. So it's a message he came into the interview preparing to send. And the the you know, what what he's essentially doing is he's using the violence of Trump's supporters as a weapon in a political debate about whether to do the impeachment. Um, I I wanted to barf. I really wanted to just puke when I saw this. And I went out and told my wife, there were moments when I was researching this when I said, Oh my God, you won't believe this. So Lindsey Graham did some incredibly low things, some incredibly dangerous things in the course of this story. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna um suggest that anyone should take that lightly. I just wanted to say that in the in the arc of the whole thing, he's not an empty person. He's not a thoroughly hateable person.
0: All right. Um, with that redemptive uh 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 Let's talk about the importance of the story for a minute. Um, one way to look at this story is as the essentially a character tale about an individual. But if you look at it that way, it's actually not that interesting because what happened to Lindsey Graham... You know, I don't know what happened to John Thune, you know, right? We, which if you if you or what happened to, you know, Tammy Baldwin, the the lives of a senator doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Um uh the only reason the story matters is as a as a as a tale about how good people or not bad people or people with reasonable insight succumb to authoritarianism, which is how you set it up. And I'm interested in your sense of um what the big takeaway lesson is. So if you say, um, all right, like Lindsey Graham succumbed, we all have this. Uh, we have this portrait of it. What is the story it tells us about what Anne Applebaum would call the seductive lore of authoritarianism?
1: Well, okay. So at the end of in, in the text version, I did an epilogue, and I actually wrote twenty lessons of the story. And so some of what I might say here are just are in. I would encourage people to go to the Corruption of Lindsey Graham text version. And just go to the epilogue, and and those are the general lessons. The the overarching point, I guess, I would make is that this was a slow process, and it's important to debunk this very popular notion among the resistance types that Lindsey Graham uh, went on a golf outing with Donald Trump in 2017, and Trump revealed some compromise that he had on Graham. The the let's be clear what this is. There's a, the, the theory is Lindsey Graham is gay and that Trump had some dirt on Lindsey's sex life. And as a result of this, Lindsey, quote, did a 180 and, and became a Trumper. So there's no evidence for this. No one ever, I always hear scuttlebutt about this, but nobody has produced anything to support it. And it's not compatible. It's not just there's no evidence. There's no, it's not compatible with the record. That is to say, What the record of Lindsey Graham shows is a gradual process, a gradual process of rationalizing his way into becoming an all-out Trumper. And that is the most important thing to understand, that you are not presented at the front with the choice between being a loyal small-D Democrat, uh, someone who believes in democracy and defends democracy, and being an all-out authoritarian. The the concession, the surrender, the rationalization happens a step at a time, and each time you take a step, you make it easier for yourself to take the next step. You you bend yourself, you become flexible. And Lindsey Graham was a particularly flexible person. But as you as you point out, Ben, he went from the extreme of being a very clear anti-Trumper to some to defending the opposite of everything that he had said in 2015 and 2016. There's nothing we say about Donald Trump today that Lindsey Graham wasn't saying in 2015. And so the, the sheer magnitude of that change is remarkable. And it, it did not happen at once. It happened over time. And the reason why it's important to understand this is that it, other people, in other countries and in our own country will be faced with similar choices and it will they will look small at the time. And it's very important to understand from history and from this history that the first concession you make is very, very dangerous. And if you think that you have the power to stop yourself um, and to stop others, um, you may be very well mistaken. And so w- we need to be not just what other people might do in our country, well, what we ourselves might do. Um, imagine a situation where um, it's a Democrat who is abusing you know uh, abusing the power of the presidency and we tell ourselves, oh, but the Republicans are so bad we need to stand with this guy And we we rationalize the first step. We rationalize the next step. Democrats love, by the way to you know pass ex- do a, a, a write executive orders to substitute for for Congress doing things. So we could this could happen. And all of us need to beware it.
0: All right, I want to return to the lesson in a moment because uh, I have an alternative hypothesis or alternative lesson. But Richard, you have a question. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. Indeed. Uh, um, okay, good. I wasn't sure if I was muted or not. Um, so uh, before I listen to the uh, to your reporting, well, I um, I'd been under the impression that McCain's presence in the Senate had kind of put the brakes on Graham's support for Trump, and that after McCain died, it seemed as if the uh, if Graham threw off all the restraints that he might have um, imposed on himself. And so, I'm just curious then if you have any thoughts um, about McCain's influence and the the how that uh, it, that had uh a minimal role in uh the way that events unfolded both before and after uh McCain passed
1: uh it's a very good question um and a lot of people you think that McCain was such a dominant influence in Graham's life that his departure from the scene changed everything i think it 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 certainly had an effect because if you don't have friends around you who are there to tell you things you know, to, to correct you, um, you can go further astray. But having said that, I think what the what the record shows, and part of the point of doing this chronology was to be able to answer questions like this. What the chronology shows is that Graham had already begun to make the most, most important changes in his relationship with Trump and his treatment of the rule of law before McCain died, well before McCain died. Now, McCain was, McCain got sick. So it's, you know, it's during a period when when McCain was ill, but in 2017, uh, McCain was still functional, and 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 Graham and McCain had already begun to part. And some of the reporting from this period indicates, and this not anything I came up with, that McCain already was developing what's that word contempt for Graham that that he he saw Graham having already left the McCain trajectory. So it's tragic that McCain wasn't able to stop him. Uh, I, I I, don't know what McCain would say today, but if McCain had been around, would he have been able to rein in some of Graham's? It, it, it's a really, the interesting question to me is what happens after, if McCain is still alive after January 6th? Is McCain enough of a figure at that point to, to ground the Republican Party? Um, and I think the answer is no. I think McCain was not big enough to stop the descent, the moral descent of of this party, uh, but we'll never know.
0: Yeah, so that brings us to Auntie's question. Uh, up late in Finland, Auntie Rua Conan, uh the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, also, a shout out to to the ballwork. Been a been a listener, so there's a there's definitely a Finnish democratic to to the
1: ballwork as well, but. Uh... So,
0: Will, if you, what do you think, if you were able to uh, hold a seance to, uh, to John, to, that would reach John McCain, uh, what do you think he would feel about uh, Lindsey Graham today?
1: Thank you. Well, at the moment, d- I, John McCain would be very proud that Lindsey Graham is fighting for Ukraine. He would be very proud of that. Um, and there are many other foreign policy issues where... McCain would 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 agree with Graham. He would be appalled that Graham, after January sixth, engineered the comeback, helped to engineer the comeback of Donald Trump. And McCain would be he would be appalled at at the party. Um, it's an open question whether John McCain could have survived in the Arizona Republican Party given what it's become. So I mean, remember there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who were to some degree, like John McCain. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Bob Corker, who, you know, they were form Jeff Flake, Jeff Flake uh, in Arizona. These guys all retired. Or they left the party. Um, they they recognized that they could not survive in what the Republican Party has become. So I think their feeling would be more about the party as a whole than about, McC- than about Graham, especially when you see Today, other Republicans selling out a lot more than Graham has sold out on policy. When you see, you know, the House Republican conference um abandoning Ukraine. I think, I think John McCain would have, you know, there was a really interesting speech that Mike Pence gave a couple of weeks ago on conservatism versus populism, by which he meant Reagan conservatism, which is on the way out, obviously, and, and Trump's version of populism. And Uh, Pence enumerated some issues where the Trump party has left the Reagan party, and they were on foreign policy, they were on abortion, uh, and entitlements, and uh, cutting entitlements. Um, So I think McCain would be very much a defender of the Reagan position on a lot of these issues, and he would be sad at what the Republican party has become. Really interesting question, could John McCain, if he were healthy, I mean, he was too old at this point, but if he were a healthy younger man, a, char- a guy of that character, could he have left the party and taken a lot of people with him and, f- and formed something else that would actually be viable? Interesting question.
0: So I want to explore some alternative uh, lessons of the Lindsey Graham story. Um, none, to none of which I am committed, but I'm, um, I, there were things that came up for me as i read read this so one is that the disparity that you identify between his you know when he demands his wages of sin they are all foreign policy internationalism issues none of them are domestic rule of law issues He doesn't actually seem to care about the domestic rule of law. Um, He cares a great deal about whether there are a few thousand U.S. troops in Syria. Um, And I look at that as a that's a very peculiar choice. in in my view, and um, he's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time. He's um, he's a uh, he's a military ju- air force judge at at, at times uh, this is a guy whose basic orientation is um uh, i guess he's he's a foreign policy guy but he's you know he came up as a politician through the clinton impeachment being a as a member of the house judiciary committee his involvement in these issues is old And yet he's very willing to sell this stuff out in exchange for a set of modest crumbs of internationalism from a politician like Trump, who deeply does not believe the things that he believes as a general orienting point in foreign policy. And I want to give a less charitable psychoanalysis of this than you do, which is that Lindsey Graham knows you cannot ask the tyrant as your wages of sin for his core. Um, You can't say, okay, I'll pledge, you know, Bayat to you, uh, Donald Trump, but in exchange, you have to be a, a good citizen who believes in the rule of law and who will not misuse the power of the presidency. But you can take stuff that in countries that he barely knows exist and say, all right, I'll give up the core, the rule of law stuff. And you and I'll even frame the serious stuff in a way that's palatable to you. Keep the oil, you know, that stuff. Uh, but you have to give me crumbs, and I think Lin- the things that you think Lindsey Graham got that are substantial from Trump are actually pretty trivial. Um, they're, you know, don't squash Millie like a bug all at once. Do it in three separate uh, stomps over six months. Um, they're, and what he gives up is enormous, and i guess i'm I guess I want to push you on whether he um whether we're giving him whether we're we're inflating the value of the 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 take that he got in exchange for his soul. I mean, we know what Dorian Gray got. Dorian Gray got eternal youth Lindsey Graham got a little bit, few more troops sticking around a little bit in Syria.
1: So I don't disagree with you Ben I I think that's true but your point is really about so you and I agree about this what Graham surrendered was not worth what he got um and to me that is a moral criticism that is he didn't Wait, but from-
0: but I'm saying something more than that I'm saying he didn't get jack shit he got he got minor influence around the edges of, of, of a betrayal of his general foreign policy views. Trump ran as a, not an internationalist. He governed as he slapped tariffs on, you know, he almost pulled out of NATO. Graham got, got little bits of of stuff around the edges of a fundamental reorientation of the Republican party away from his position.
1: Well, it sort of depends that that last point it depends on how you view the Democratic party. Now, I think the Democratic party has proved to be robustly internationalist and that's, you know, in in Ukraine. So, um I think Graham got that wrong. But Graham fundamentally agreed with the Trump position on Iran, for example, not the not the Obama or Biden position. Um, and there were lots of other issues where he agreed more with Trump, although Trump was relatively speaking an isolationist in the Republican Party, than with the Democrats. And Graham rationalized that Trump was just better than the Democrats, even if Trump was flawed on all of these issues. Now, so I don't think you're saying it's a nothing. You're just saying it's very little. It's very little compared to what he gave away. I don't disagree with you. I think you're exactly right about that. And I think that will be the judgment of history. I hope that will be the judgment of history, because there's always a version of the future in which you and I end up getting trampled. Yeah, by- we
0: lose. Okay. We're the, yeah. the Mensheviks.
1: Yeah, but but in my, you know, optimistic view of the future, uh it is it, it that is what you're saying becomes the understood one of the understood conclusions about this that this senator and and many other Republicans in the name of extracting relatively small concessions from Trump uh, enabled a a far greater abuse of power and a far greater danger to this country. And I'm assuming we survive that if we don't, you know, all bets are off. But uh, what Graham gave away is to me, the fact that what Graham got were relatively small numbers of troops, in a few places, extended for a period of time, right? Not, not major things. Underscores how little he, in practice, valued what he gave away, and what he gave away was our country. Um, so you speak. You spoke before about hatred and contempt. I don't know how to describe this. It, is it hatred? Is it contempt? What Lindsey Graham sold out was profoundly treacherous. What he what he what he sold out of our country, and at no time did he say that that was what he was doing. But it's what he did because he w- he was determined to defend Donald Trump at every point. And there was no line that Donald Trump crossed in the betrayal of American democracy and the American constitutional system that Lindsey Graham didn't rationalize up to and in including, as you recall, um, what was it in January? Trump literally saying that the Constitution should be suspended to return him to power. It is amazing, absolutely amazing that Graham and other Republican leaders justified this, looked the other way to this day, are supporting this man. And no, I agree with you. There is no place in this world where Lindsey Graham, whatever Lindsey Graham got in the way of extended deployment is worth crap like that. There just isn't. And it's it's a profound betrayal of America and he should answer for it in the course of history.
0: Yeah, I think this is a critical point that if you if you listen to the Lindsey Graham self-justification, he thinks he got a lot. He thinks and and sometimes you can make fun of it the way Liebovich does, that it's all about that it's all about Lindsey Graham's relevance. Or you can take it seriously the way Lindsey Graham does that, you know, he he was the brakes on a lot of things that he didn't approve of and that he kept Trump in line. But what's striking to me about it is how little he got, not how, you know, particularly relative to what he gave up. But I think I think the, the the fascinating thing to me is how he inflates the the list of things um and you know a lot of them are in the broad scheme of things pretty trivial i want to raise with you another psychological explanation for graham's trajectory which is the discomfort he felt About being outside of the embrace of his party. And this, I'm going to add a little McCain psychoanalysis to this for argument purposes. But it seems to me Lindsey Graham really enjoyed being a renegade, but not being a solo renegade. And so when he had McCain, who was the lead renegade, he would be the loyal party member who was a maverick with McCain. And then he kind of takes that into the 2016 campaign. And he's the maverick truth speaker who will tell the truth about Donald Trump. But since the whole party, at least the party elites, all hated Trump, he was actually not far from the center of gravity of his party. He was just loud about it. Then Trump wins the nomination and Lindsey Graham does more or less what everybody does, which is kind of shuts up and figures Hillary will take care of the problem for us. So you don't, you know, you don't do her work for her, but you kind of know she's going to win. And so it's not a big deal. And then, in the fall, he is faced with the real cognitive dissonance choice, which is uh, you're the 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 liberal in the bulwark community, but it's really hard for the bulwark crowd to get their hands around because the bulwark crowd, this is the big psychological difference between Lindsey Graham and the bulwark crowd. The bulwark crowd felt great discomfort with being part of the herd as it was running toward the edge of the cliff and separated themselves from it and found that liberating. And Graham felt enormously isolated being away from the herd and runs towards the herd and helps lead it over the cliff. And I want to suggest that the unifying thing in all of these periods is, first of all, that Graham is never far from the center of gravity of his party. That is, when the center of gravity is anti-Trump, he's anti-Trump. When it's shutting up about Trump, he's shutting up about Trump. And when it's running toward the edge of the cliff to dive over in a show of loyalty, I'm confusing my caribou with my lemmings here, but uh, he's right there at the head of the pack. Um, But the second thing is that his great discomfort in life is being isolated from the herd and that he he feels just as the bulwark people feel why can't why isn't the herd turning with me? He feels like being left behind by the herd is ultimately unacceptable. and that this psychological uh, uh, account of him explains in the broad scheme of things, not details, but explains almost everything uh, in the big sweep of the way he goes.
1: I think that's a very good insight. Uh, the, the word that's coming to mind as I'm listening to you is extrovert. With Lindsey Graham, part of his weakness may have been that he's extroverted. And the sheer fact that he did so many interviews, um, it, it seems like Lindsey Graham needs to be around other people and needs the validation of other people in a way that some of my bulwark colleagues don't and some other republicans didn't mccain i think didn't need it that much mccain i don't know if it's in mccain's character or in mccain's history that he developed uh, an inner sense of what was right and wrong and he's more maybe just a more stubborn guy um but graham clearly depended on, emotionally, on on being in the middle of things. He always wanted to. There's a great interview, Ben. Um, I didn't see it until I was near the end of this, uh, the project, in April. So let's back up. Jamal Khashoggi, right? The the Saudi government orders the murder of a journalist. They kill him, gruesomely. They cover it up. The CIA says they did it. Uh, Trump says they didn't. Lindsey Graham breaks with the Saudis. Lindsey Graham says... I'm done with MBS with the the crown prince, right? I'm never going to have talk to these people again until they get rid of this guy. They don't. MBS stays in power. He becomes more powerful. F- that's 2018. Five years later, the Saudis, you know, bought a bunch of Boeings, 37 billion dollars worth of Boeing uh, arms. Uh, Lin- Lindsey Graham go uh, aircraft. Lindsey Graham goes over to Saudi Arabia, makes up with the crown prince we're going to forget all about it. And in this he goes, he gives an interview to Al Arabiya, a Saudi TV station channel. He says they ask him why he's making up with MBS. He says, you spent 37 billion dollars in South Carolina, so I'm always going to say thank you. So money. But the other thing is, he says he actually says ben FOMO, fear of missing out. He refers to that, which goes exactly to your point, which also dovetails with what Leibovitz found in his reporting that Lindsey Graham does like to be in the middle of things. And Graham has has said this on other occasions. So I think your psychological theory here is true. And it's a weakness of extroverts. I say this as an introvert, right? So discounted a little bit. It's a weakness of extro- extroverts that they are somewhat more malleable in situations like this, where the whole, their whole social environment, their whole party moves off the cliff, right? And yeah, and Graham sort of, did, he did move with that. And McCain did not feel that he needed to be in the middle of the Trump administration. He did not feel that he needed Donald Trump's ear, right? Because the ear that what 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 John McCain heard was a voice in his own head saying what was right and wrong. And but Lindsey Graham felt that he needed to be in the middle of that. And that made Graham vulnerable to the illusion that he created for himself, that he was the one manipulating Donald Trump instead of the other way around, Right. So I think your analysis is is largely correct,
0: Auntie. You have another question. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so, is there anything that sets uh, Lindsey Graham apart from uh, other Republicans uh, from being uh, critical of Trump immediately after January the sixth, and then returning back to uh, compliance? Thank you.
1: Uh, so, my answer to that is. In various ways, m- many Republicans were critical of Donald Trump immediately after January 6th. And so while there were some who tur- completely turned the other way, most of them recognized... I mean, Kevin McCarthy is an example. Mitch McConnell is another example. They all said things that would have should have led to them renouncing Donald Trump and ex- doing what they could to expel him from the party and making sure that he was never the party standard bearer again. And then very quickly... To varying degrees, they capitulated. Um, the there is a myth, in particular, about Lindsey Graham that he actually broke with Trump. And what people remember is the speech that he gave on the floor of the Senate on the night of January sixth. The Senate has come back in after the riot, and the, Lindsey Graham, you know, says, uh, you know, I've with Trump and me, it's been a long journey, and but count me out. Enough is enough. And people thought that meant he was leaving trump he was He never left trump. he never left him. There's no evidence at any point that he left trump what he what he what he actually meant in the speech was i'm done contesting the election. This election is over I'm accepting the results because there were other Republicans who weren't even doing that but Graham himself, although he condemned the riots um he he never really abandoned Trump during that period. He went less far than Mitch McConnell did certainly in terms of condemning Donald Trump. And, and um, whereas you know other people in the party to varying degrees tried to stop Trump or inhibit Trump returning to power, Graham was enabling him the whole time. And the, not my reporting, other people's backstage reporting during that whole period from January 6th to January 20th, Graham is working, he's going to the White House, he's working with Trump, he's trying to nurse Trump along and get him to not stage another riot. But at no point did Graham either apparently believe he certainly never said that if trump were to do so that that graham would renounce him permanently he never did
0: julia you have a question richard and i were wondering in the chat um
1: what do you both uh will and ben think graham would have done if trump had pulled out of nato would have hit at the heart of his biggest issue which is defense and
0: national security what do you think
1: so my guess is that I think Lindsey Graham, it depends at what point you're thinking about it, because Trump was all along. From In 2016, Trump was pissing on NATO. And uh, I think the threat was there all the way along from the beginning of his presidency. So it depends somewhat on the stage. But I think very quickly, Lindsey Graham became so psychologically invested in, in, in Trump and what he had already conceded, uh, you know, the firing of Jim Comey and other things, that he he would rationalize anything. That is, if Trump were pulling out of NATO, Graham would lobby Trump not to pull out of NATO, but if Trump did pull out of NATO, Graham would stay with Trump and the rationale he would have constructed is, it's important for me to be here at Trump's side trying to lobby him to go back into NATO. Now that's a completely different world in which the superpower has pulled out of the alliance and whether you can reconstruct anything after that is an open question, But I think the answer is this is a rationale that he could have put together in his head and he would certainly have embraced it.
0: I completely agree. I can't identify the thing that he has done uh, that would lead me to think that there's anything that he wouldn't rationalize by Trump, including, by the way, on national security matters. Uh, Trump had 300 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Three hundred pages of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago—that's not the act of somebody who takes national security seriously. And Lindsey Graham has uh, been a vociferous defender of storing classified material at Mar-a-Lago without a skin outside of a skiff. So I don't—I don't think there is a stable uh, anything in here.
1: Um, the, sorry, go ahead. I to add one thing there. The the trick that Graham plays in his head to rationalize stuff like this is he does often say it is wrong to commit this particular act that Trump just did. So Trump pulls out of NATO. Graham could say, you know, we shouldn't have pulled out of NATO. We should stay in NATO. We should get back into NATO. We should rebuild NATO. But what Graham would never do is abandon Trump, the man. He would say, well, he went too far. He did this thing I disagree with. And he did this often, by the way, with some betrayals of, of the constitutional system. But as long as you're committed to the man and the man knows you're committed to him, right? You're not actually effective because he just keeps going.
0: All right. So I want to talk about one of the themes that you identify that Graham really uses that I had never noticed uh, until I read your book, um, which is Graham's sense that all his prior criticisms are mooted by the fact that Trump beat him and won. And this is supposed to give a kind of democratic gloss to the, you know, I, yeah, I called him a bigot. I said all kinds of things, but he beat me. Um, And I'm, I've gone back and forth about this because Lindsey Graham is not a stupid man. And this is a deeply stupid argument. Um, And I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, lots of people beat lots of people. That doesn't change what's true. Um, Trump is a bigot. And every, the things Lindsey Graham said about him are true. And they were not on the ballot. What was on the ballot was whether Lindsey Graham or Donald Trump should be the Republican nominee for president. Um, And there's... You know, the list of things that he justifies not believing anymore because he lost uh is long and their core principles, right? And by the way, he doesn't he doesn't take the position that now he doesn't criticize Joe Biden because Joe Biden beat Trump, right? So there's there's a highly selective application of this principle that on the one hand, I say, um, He can't possibly believe this. It's just a talking point that he's using to rationalize sucking up to power. But the other part of me says, actually, this is in a very kind of high school way. The, The bigger football player who slams the littler football player up against the locker is the big dog, and what he says goes because the littler dogs know that he will slam them up against the locker, and he's got the letter jacket, and their litter jackets are smaller than his, and there's a a kind of a I don't know, to again to mix metaphors a chick a pecking order thing. And in Lindsey Graham's mind, you know, I put it all on the line in that election, in that primary, and he kicked my ass. So now I, you know, genuflect and bow to him. Um, And that there's a kind of crude logic to it in a totally illogical sort of way. And so my question is, do you think he actually believes that shit? Like, do you think think he did, like that he had this realization like, wow, I fought for maverick Republican values and I lost, so they're wrong. And he fought for power and ego. And he won, therefore, power and his ego.
1: Right. Uh so uh Jonathan last asked me the same question. Um, and uh I don't know exactly, but I, here's what I here's what I think. I think that people who rationalize the way Lindsey Graham rationalized, um they, they construct these rationales for a purpose. They, they, they're just, they've decided on a course of action and they want to construct a moral argument for what they're doing. And so that's what he does. When the first time, Ben, that he, that he invokes this idea of Donald Trump has been chosen by the, the, the voters and so I'm going to erase what I believed about him previously, I'm going to defer to the voters, uh, it, it really goes back to um, 2016 when Trump gets the nomination. And then it accelerates when Trump wins the presidency. And the first time that Graham does this, I don't think he believes it because he's just, you know, he's just explained on the merits, as you point out, you know, why Trump should never be anywhere near the seat of power. Um, But he 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 tells this story to justify to other people what he's what he Graham is is doing that he's coming over to supporting Donald Trump. Um, And then I believe that over time, somebody like Lindsey Graham who constructs these rationales in his head and is very good at it. He thinks like a lawyer. He's always been, he has a purpose, he has a goal in mind and he's justifying it. He's not thinking about what the right thing to do is. He's thinking about how to justify what he's already decided to do. So I think that as he goes along he increasingly believes his own bullshit. And I think this is part of the bullshit that he came to believe. But I wanted to go dig under that because I want to bring this back to your theory about him wanting to be in the middle of things, about the FOMO. Um
0: yeah, so my, that's more marks my point is he's he's discomforted by being by being out of step with the center of gravity of the group
1: this is a kind of being out of step so i think that um you know there there are some people uh, first of all there's there is this alpha theory of graham that graham had an alpha in john mccain He was McCain's little brother. Then he lost he lost a good alpha and he he adopted a bad alpha in Trump. Right. That's the locker of throwing up against the locker theory. I'm very skeptical of that. I think Graham is a deferential person, but I think it is more true and more important that Graham defers to the to the crowd, to the mob. And that is what happened. And so when the when Republican voters chose Donald Trump, Lindsey Graham, instead of saying, "Look, I said these things were true of Trump; that he's unfit for the following reasons. They're still true. I stand by it." Lindsey Graham went with the with the crowd, with the Republican electorate, and 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 then he just continued in the trajectory of of following instead of leading. So I think this the fundamental weakness of his that drove him to become more and more of an enabler, a more and more of a collaborator. Was this need. To feel that he was in in the middle of, I would the term I would use is relevant. It's a word that Graham himself has used with other people, with other reporters, that he, he wanted to remain relevant. And if you let relevance be determined not by your values but by wherever the crowd goes then you're just going to blow in the wind, which is essentially what Graham did. And all the while he was doing it, he had to rationalize why why this was moral. So I think all this talk about democracy and the will of the people, and I'm deferring to that, was his way of morally rationalizing a fundamental weakness in himself, which was going with the, with the mob.
0: Yeah, so there's another time he really goes with the mob, and it's the Kavanaugh nomination. But he doesn't just go with the mob. He doesn't put his finger in the wind. He anticipates the gust of wind and kind of blows hard in that direction and thus helps create the wind that he then um, uh, rides. Uh, It seems to me his most successful moment as a Trump, uh, as a Trumpist, in that he garners the pleasure of Trump, uh, who's enthusiastic about it, garners the pleasure of the movement, who is not always enthusiastic about Lindsey Graham. And he becomes a bit of a celebrity, even beyond it, because that speech was, you know, whatever one may say about it, right, you know, it was breathtaking. It was one of the key moments in that uh, whole thing. And so I'm, I'm interested in your sense of, was that figuring out where the crowd was going and getting there right before everybody else did? Was that anticipating where Trump would want him to be? Was there, it actually did seem sincere in a way that I don't entirely understand since he was completely wrong. But um, I I'm curious how you read it. You you describe it in the in the book in uh, kind of clinically, but you don't you don't dis- you don't sort of say what you think he was doing. Um, what would, what do you think he was doing? Ben, I don't know, and that, that
1: it's that's a really difficult one for me. It is, of all the of all the passages in his career under Trump. This is the one where I feel I have done the least adequate job of explaining and understanding what appeared to be a sudden turn. I mean, there was a buildup before that where throughout 2018, Graham had been sort of increasingly attacking enemies of Trump. Um, but and he starts talking about a bureaucratic coup against Trump shortly before this. So the Russia investigation stuff. But the turn on Kavanaugh is remarkable. And if you watch the hearing where Graham erupts in this speech, Durbin and other guys are sitting around Trump, all these senators, they're shocked. They're, they've never seen Graham talk this way. I mean, he's, he's practically spitting. He's so angry. Um, I can't, uh, the simplest explanation is that Graham was genuinely furious, genuinely furious about the way that Kavanaugh was treated, for, and specifically about that he felt that the Kavanaugh was sandbagged. But the intensity coming out of nowhere, the degree of the intensity, even if you agree, is remarkable. I there I have not seen anything. I was not, did not find anything about a prior relationship with, between Graham and Kavanaugh that made this as personal as it seemed for him, um, or anything afterwards. So th- the best explanation I can offer, and it's the one that I that I did in the book, was that this was that Graham needed to hate the Democrats. And he mean he was on that trajectory earlier in the year. And what he said about about the Democrats in the hearing, he then accelerated. He accentuated more in the weeks after that leading into the election. He may have already decided that he was going to um campaign against his colleagues, for example. And this is something that he hadn't done before. There's this, is, you know, unwritten rule in the Senate, you know, you know, I'm not going to campaign against a fellow senator. Um, and but, and Graham said, I've never done it before, but I'm going to do it now. Maybe he had made that decision and the Kavanaugh hearing gave him sort of an excuse. Because, But I, I don't know. I don't know what was a, a triggering event for that. He definitely used it in, his, in the subsequent turn, the latter part of 2018 going into 2019. If you look at what he was saying to Republican audiences in the spring of 2019 and thereafter, it was much more... About the Democratic Party being fundamentally evil and dangerous, um, which is something you needed to believe if you were going to be defending all of the bad things Donald Trump did and what it was going to do. So functionally, I can understand it, but if there was a trigger about Kavanaugh in particular, I just don't know.
0: Yeah. So um what do you think the future of Lindsey Graham is? He's um he's so tied to Trump at this point that. You know, if Trump were to vanish in a puff of smoke, either uh, as a result of a heart attack or a criminal conviction or uh, a, a, an electoral defeat um, or some combination of the three, uh, what is Lindsey Graham's in this in this corrupted state where he is essentially a appendage, of trump what what does he do with himself
1: well graham has preserved in terms of his job security he's preserved his seat in the senate which allows him if donald trump doesn't come back to just to remain in the middle of things as he likes to be to remain influential in the the policy debates he cares about whether it's ukraine or something else Um, And abortion is another one where Lindsey Graham has, you know, sort of moved the party from a 20 week limit to a 15 week limit federally as as their position. So he'll still be relevant as long as he keeps his job. Whether he can keep his job in South Carolina is kind of an interesting question. Um, I mean, if Trump comes back, well, (laughs) we got a lot bigger problems than Lindsey Graham if Trump comes back. But
0: Graham would be Secretary of State.
1: Well, no, but he's he's previously declined Trump's invitations to come into the to to come into the administration. He doesn't he doesn't want that. He wants to stay where he is. And he's more useful to Trump in the Senate. There was a a couple of days ago, Trump was in South Carolina and he gave a speech. And uh, I don't think Graham was at the speech. But at the beginning of the speech, Trump mentions Lindsey Graham and Henry McMaster and these other Republicans. Everybody claps. This is a Republican crowd. They're clapping. You get to Lindsey. Trump mentions Lindsey Graham and they're booing him. And this happened before when Trump was in South Carolina. So there are a lot of Trumpers in South Carolina who are booing Lindsey Graham, whether they're and, un- and,
0: and why is that? What What's their beef? Like, what's the thing? Is it just memory of 2016? Is it the sense that he's independent, which, of course, he isn't in any meaningful sense anymore? And that that independence is bad. What's what's the Trumpist case against Lindsey Graham?
1: I don't exactly know, but it is true that a lot of Trumpers uh, remember that vaguely that that Graham was very critical of Donald Trump years ago, and they don't think he's he's really one of their guys. Um, which is ironic because you know you and I would say uh, who is the real Lindsey Graham? It's the one we're dealing with now. That it turns out that he was willing to sell out everything he believed, and he didn't really take seriously what he said in 2015.
0: And also, you know, that doesn't stop a lot of the same people from liking J.D. Vance. And, you know, there there are, there are plenty of people who were critical of Trump once upon a time who have come into the fold, um, uh, you know, who don't seem to have the Lindsey Graham problem. But for some reason... People yell at him in airports and uh, and there's a there's a sense that Lindsey I I don't mean to defend him. If people don't like Lindsey Graham, that's fine with me. But I, I do think it's odd that of all the Republican senators who have a who have a problem with the base for not being nice enough to Trump, that Lindsey Graham is like measures on that particular Richter scale.
1: That you know, so let me come here to the example that you asked about. There, you talked about people yelling at Graham in airports. The famous scene is, I think, it's January eighth, a couple of days after January sixth. What are those people yelling in the airport yelling at Lindsey Graham about? They're yelling at him because on the night of January sixth, he voted to, to accept the election results, to author to, to and and maybe that's the unforgivable sin, Ben. I mean, this party has gone so far off the end that maybe that's an apostasy that. I don't I don't remember what what J.D. Vance said at the time, uh, but but nobody thinks J.D. Vance doesn't have the same prominence. And I think a lot of people remember that speech. And for the same reason, a lot of folks on the left, a lot of liberals think that Graham sold out, uh, rejected Trump on the night of January 6th. So do a lot of Trumpers. They think the same thing. And maybe Graham can't win them back. But it it is it's been a pattern now of, of Graham getting booed in his home state. So this goes to your question about his future. Could he be unseated in in a primary in what would now be three years from now? I, I mean, I guess it could happen. But Trump seems well invested in him. Lindsey Graham's got to hope that Donald Trump lives because he needs Donald Trump's endorsement to survive that. But I think the larger point here is what the hell is Lindsey Graham's career worth? What's the point of him getting back in the Senate if he's going to be as hollow as he was during the Trump years?
0: Yeah. So let's close on that question: Is he more hollow? than the Mitch McConnells, than the uh uh than the nameless, faceless uh white men, and they are all almost all white men, um, uh who aren't as loud as he is, who many of them have no public profile at all and can get on airplanes without being recognized, you know. The Jim Rishes of the world who I wouldn't I saw him at an event the other day and, you know, was dimly aware because he was introduced as a senator that, um, oh, that's Senator Jim Rish. I wouldn't have recognized him on the street. Um, You know, is is he any hollower than they are or is he just louder?
1: It's it's hard to say he there are because there are issues on which Lindsey Graham has prominently taken positions that are contrary to the populist wing. I can't even call it a wing, the body of the Republican Party like Ukraine. Um, I I, I want to give him some credit for substance on that. He's willing to dig on all those things. I don't know if Jim Risch or others are, are you know, there are, there are some senators who are willing to vote the right way, but they're not willing to take a stand the way he has. On the other hand, who has done more damage than Lindsey Graham in terms of uh, enabling Donald Trump? I mean, at very crucial moments. I mean, Kevin McCarthy has done more damage in the, because of his, him going to Mar-a-Lago after January 6th. And that was absolutely crucial. Mitch McConnell has actually been, nobody wants to hear this and I'll get things thrown at me, but he's been relatively good compared to other Republicans about Donald Trump. He is not, he, he has been quite critical of, of Trump's um excesses of, of Trump of January 6th and since then. And, and of course, Trump's trying to unseat him. On and the other
0: hand, he's single-handedly responsible for Trump's eligibility to uh, become president again. And you know, Mitch McConnell had the opportunity to stop Trump and passed it up or thought the Democrats would take care of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I felt less I felt McConnell less for saying after January. I mean, his McConnell stated rationale for not impeaching, for not convicting Trump was that Trump was no longer president and under his legal theories he didn't think that was you could impeach somebody in that situation. But in addition to that, McConnell said right around that time, shortly after the um the conviction vote, the, the acquittal vote, McConnell said something like that he would he would still support Trump for for president if he were the nominee. And that that that's there's no excuse for that even if you believe the legal theory. So yeah, McConnell's guilty of cowardice there. Graham did more. Graham enabled Trump's comeback. I mean Graham Graham outstrips so many of these other guys in his machinations, his his um backstage efforts to help engineer Trump's comeback. Um and uh there's no you know I, I just think it's Graham's singular legacy. I think that's one one reason why Graham's people didn't want him to talk to me is I told them this is what I was going to, I was just going to be talking about his relationship with Trump. He doesn't want to talk about his relationship with Trump unless it's like Fox News or something. But unfortunately for Lindsey Graham and unfortunately for our country and the world, I think the most important thing in Lindsey Graham's life was his collaboration with Trump. It is, and it's an ongoing collaboration and the, the full extent of the damage is not yet done.
0: I think that's exactly right. And that is why The Corruption of Lindsey Graham is a deeply important book uh, and a very slim book that you can read in a sitting because it did start life as an article in The Bulwark. Um, uh, I recommend it highly. Uh, Will Salatan, you're a great American. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Ben. This was a delight.
0: And uh, folks, we will be back. We've got a whole bunch of bookshirts scheduled. scheduled. Uh, on uh, uh, October 16th, Kristen Cobas dumez will be joining us on her book, Jesus and John Wayne. On November 13th, Yasha Monk will be here about his new book, The Identity Trap. And one I am particularly excited about on November 24th, Katja Hoyer will be talking about her book, Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany, which uh, as somebody who, as an 18-year-old, went to East Germany the year before the Wall, Berlin Wall came down, I could not be more excited to read a history of that very peculiar little uh, episode. Um, we will be back. You should all, for those who were watching on YouTube, join us in the Zoom conversation. It's more fun in here. We got a the awesome Greek chorus chat. You can have your questions answered, uh, and uh, you can be part of the the inner circle. I don't mean to, you know, be an elite, but the the talk in elitist terms. But you know, this is where the deep state is. It's in the 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 chat here. Um, Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of these. It's going to be the way I force myself to read a book a week this next year. And uh, we will be back shortly. And thanks for joining us.